In a domestic season, set pieces typically account for around 30% of goals. So it's no wonder clubs employ dedicated set piece consultants to hone their prowess. But on the field, it's typically down to one player, a member of an exclusive club of master technicians, the set piece specialists. Free kick marvels, penalty kings, giant throwers and canny corner takers make up this elite crowd. And today we celebrate them for the excitement they have brought to the beautiful game. The likes of Beckham, Pirlo and David Unsworth. Arthur, welcome to this show. Great to be back. It is excellent to be back. This is our first ever evening recording of the eleven. I don't know whether the listeners can sense a a day's work behind us. Yeah, there's tired eyes here on Zoom, uh, but we're under the floodlights. We should make it through to the end of this episode. I hope you'll stick with us for that too. Um, If you're new to the podcast, uh, the 11's all about conjuring up nostalgic names of years gone by. So we're going to be discussing 11 set-piece specialists today in a 4-5-1 formation. If you have any thoughts at home about who could slot into this 11, then we do have a Twitter account. We're at 11pod. That's the word and not the number. Okay, so it feels natural to start in goal and it's your selection, Arthur. Um, But set pieces and goalkeepers isn't a natural combo. No, it isn't. You're quite right. There are, of course, the rare breed of set piece taking goalkeeper, such as Schillevere, who we've discussed on this podcast before, and Rogerio Senni as well, mm. um, both prolific goal scorers of free kicks, which is incredible. But instead, I've decided to focus on a penalty saving specialist. Oh, thinking outside the box, Arthur, or, or inside the box in this case. Oh, God. Very true. I've gone for Mark Crossley. <laughs> Crossers. Love it. Did he ever get called Crossers? Uh, he has now. Very good. You've christened him there. He was a Welsh international who spent 11 years in total in the Premier League uh, for Middlesbrough and Fulham, but is most fondly remembered for his time at Nottingham Forest, mm. uh, where he mm. enjoyed his best years. He made almost 400 appearances for them as they yo-yoed between the first division and the Premier League throughout the 90s. In his Premier League career, Mark Crossley faced 14 penalties and saved eight. An unbelievable save percentage of 57%. To put that into a bit of context, last season in the Premier League, only 13 of 125 penalties were saved. So that's a 10.4%. And there was Mark with 57%. That really is amazing. And he had that imposing frame, didn't he, Mark Crossley, which I always think is such a wonderful intimidation tactic when it comes to um, the 12-yard kick. The the 12-yard kick. Yeah, as it's known by nobody. Crossley's most memorable stop was against Southampton idol Matt Letissier in Mm. March 1993. Matt Letissier, worthy of a pick in the 11 himself, really, for this Uh, category is arguably the greatest penalty taker of all time having scored 47 of the 48 he took in his career and Mark saved that one that he missed he also managed Mm. to save three consecutive penalty kicks in the Premier League back in 1999 
away from the Premier League, he continued to be incredibly hard to beat from 12 yards, including saving three penalties in an FA Cup shootout victory against Tottenham in 1996. Another of his famous saves was from Spurs striker Gary Lineker in the 1991 FA Cup final, making him at the time only the second goalkeeper ever to have saved a penalty kick in an FA Cup final. I think there might now be three, but I'm willing to be corrected on that. I found it fascinating him talking through his process. He said, with the ball placed on the spot and the opposition player ready and waiting, I'm still telling the referee it wasn't a penalty. I'm still probably going to get a drink out of my drinks bottle from the side of the goal. The referee is going to threaten to caution me if I don't get back in my goal. I'll get back into the middle of the goal as slow as possible. The longer you can delay, the more pressure you can put on the striker. For me, that gave me a better chance of saving the penalty. And to go in trying to save the penalty with the attitude of, I've got nothing to lose, he's got everything to lose. I believe mentally that puts you in very good stead. And I think he definitely won the psychological battles with those strikers. It's an incredibly difficult thing to take a penalty. Uh, And as he says, there is no pressure on the goalkeeper. They're not expected to save it. And I think that's why he thrived. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, my memories of, of Mark Crossley are that he was an outstanding goalkeeper. I remember he was known as Big Norm for a period of time back at Forest because of his likeness to Norman Whiteside. Very good fact. Very good. So who's in our defence today? Well, I've chosen the left back of this side, Arthur, and I've selected someone that I've seen firsthand many times, and that's Ian Hart. Yes, big fan of Ian Hart. I've actually seen him play in a cup final at Wembley. Really? Yeah, a key part of the Carlisle United defence as Southampton <laughs> won the Johnson's Paint Trophy final in 2010. <laughs> well, that, that probably wasn't the part of his career I was planning on focusing in on. Um, but there's no doubt about it. Ian Hart was a set-piece specialist to die for. Um, an Irish left-back, he had a wand of a left foot technically gifted and fearless when shooting from range. Uh, He began his career at Leeds United, making 288 appearances across nine seasons, uh, joining in 1996. And then by 2000, he'd been named in the PFA Team of the Year. He actually moved to Levante. I don't know whether you remember this, Arthur. I don't at all, no. No, he had a, a spell in Spain playing for them and was actually quite popular out in Spain but but really it was in England where he made a name for himself he's one of just three players with 10 or more penalty and free kick goals in the Premier League uh, esteemed company with Thierry Henry and Cristiano Ronaldo and he also went on to score an unbelievable amount of free kicks for Reading which is perhaps where I I best know him from he scored eight across two seasons and despite getting a little bit exposed due to his age and lack of pace and um, he looked every bit the classy defender that we thought we'd signed twice making it into the championship team of the year and actually Ian Hart's free kicks um, gave me one of my favorite moments as a fan um, in our promotion season back to the Premier League it was his cross for Mikel Ledgetwood against Nottingham Forest that sent Reading um, up and got us promoted and there was a pitch invasion. Um, so his his free kick heroics have led to me being a bit of an asbo, Arthur, on the field of play. Everyone loves a pitch invasion, I have to say. 
actually thinking about his Carlisle stint, Ben. So mm. I've just got Wikipedia in front of me. And that season, when we faced him in the Johnson's Paint Trophy final, he scored 16 goals from defence in League it's One. Just, it, his left foot, honestly, is the best that I've seen live. Just a staggeringly good player on his day. Um, and I was compelled to find out more about what the secret to his free kick taking was, really. How a player who perhaps will never be considered in the higher echelons of left-backs in Premier League history, had such success with long-range shooting. Uh, And I found an article which suggests that he actually wears boots, which are two sizes too small for him. He was quoted as saying, I'm around an eight and a half, but I cram my feet into smaller boots, about six and a half. I know I might have problems when I'm older, but I've always done it to try and get the ball up and down and trouble keepers. If I keep sticking them in the top corner, I really don't care. Well, we need a centre-back alongside Ian Hart, someone equally adept at set pieces. I've decided to pick someone who I don't think many people would argue is more adept at set pieces, I'm afraid. okay, I've gone for Ronald Koeman. Oh, yes. I, I never saw him in his playing days, but I've heard great things. Neither did I really, but I've seen some unbelievable YouTube videos of his prowess. I just think whilst we like to avoid the obvious picks on this podcast, I don't think we could really leave out someone who's scored 239 career goals in 685 games from centre-back. It's just absolutely staggering. And he had 60 goals from direct free kicks. He began his career with Groningen before fruitful spells at Ajax and then PSV. At the latter, during the 1987 season, he recorded the highest goal-scoring season of his club career with 21 league goals from centre-back. The big move to Barcelona followed, where he spent the bulk of his career and obviously currently finds himself as manager at the time of recording. It's possible, however, (laughs) that he won't be by the time, as it's not going so well for him. He was a composed player on the ball, um, capable of being deployed both as a defender and a midfielder. And he frequently played as well at sweeper uh, due to his vision and and his ability on the ball. He was a versatile set-piece specialist, nicknamed something that I feel a fair few of the players in this 11 might have been nicknamed at some point in their career, which is free-kick king. Ah. Catchy. Ronald Koeman can strike the ball with power from long range uh, or curling shots on goal from close range. Uh, And he was also an accurate penalty kick taker. He scored 99 of his 105 career penalties, including 25 in a row, which is a La Liga record. Frustrating not to have got that final century of penalties, but 99 is pretty impressive nonetheless. Yeah, those stats really don't lie, do they? Um, And I I think there's something particularly charming about having a centre-back that that can take your set pieces for you. It's almost a bonus, isn't it? Because we we would normally associate midfielders, I suppose, with set pieces. Exactly. And it leads them just to stand out from the crowd because a goal-scoring centre-back is quite extraordinary. Regarding his unique run-up and approach to taking free kicks and penalties, there's a quote here from Rob Smythe of The Guardian, Uh, in 2009 he said we tend to associate Koeman with that particular type of free kick where he would lace the ball in a manner that was paradoxically sledgehammer rather than silk yet if anything he was more adept at the seductive short-range curler 
as with his penalties, when he would charge towards the ball like a man with murder in mind, only to tap it gently into the net. Part of the skill was in the deception. So he used to fool the goalkeeper, even from free kicks, which I think with penalties, it's very easy to disguise. We've seen the Penenka penalty, etc. But to baffle the goalkeeper from a free kick is something else entirely. One of his iconic free kicks was the goal that ensured England didn't qualify for the World Cup in 1994. It was a sumptuous free kick into the top corner. But Koeman shouldn't even have been on the pitch. I don't know whether you remember that or you won't remember it then because we were only two years old. But at nil-nil in the 56th minute, David Platt was clear through on goal and Koeman dragged him back. The referee gave a penalty only for him then to change his mind and give a free kick just outside the area. But to add insult to injury, Kuman was only given a yellow, not a red, which, bearing in mind, there was literally no one else in the frame and the referees declared it, it's a foul. I just, I can't get my head around it. And then he went and scored a free kick. Outrageous. Oh, we was robbed, Arthur. We was robbed. Not ideal. Great selection and already competition for Ian Hart. Um, when it comes to those, what was it that you described them as? Seductive, short-range curlers? Um, I think that's correct, yes. Yeah, already competition there. Alongside him, someone who won't be stepping forward to take free kicks. But this bizarre phenomenon that I've long been intrigued by is the centre-back penalty-taking specialist. It's something that I've never quite understood, how the best striker of the ball in your side could be playing at centre-back. And there are several over the years that have, have taken on this role. But one that I wanted to pick out today was Frank LeBeouf. <laughs> I never knew Frank took penalties. That's well, amazing. I, I sort of grew up watching this Chelsea side, actually, sort of between 96 and 2001. That was the period of time when I was beginning to get into my football. Um, and it was a great side. You had the likes of Zola, Viali, Poyet, Di Matteo, um, but amid such quality, in fact, the standout penalty taker was the centre-back, Frank LeBeuf. He was a cultured centre-back, distinctive bald head and a quality ball player, played for Laval and Strasbourg uh, before moving to Chelsea. He won the 1998 World Cup and the 2000 Euros with his country, France, so he'd had a glittering career. But he took more than 20 penalties for Chelsea and missed only three times, which is a remarkable record for anyone, never mind a centre-back. His most famous penalty was a a dramatic extra-time winner against Leicester City in 1997 on the road to FA Cup glory. But it's much maligned because Erling Johnson dived with just three minutes to play to win the penalty uh, and send them through in the fifth round replay. And I've seen the clip and it is very debatable. I think VAR would have a good long look at it if it happened today. Frank LeBeuf had a great deal of talent and he actually scored most of his set piece goals um, in important matches. 73% of his career penalties were scored in matches separated by just one goal. So crucial moments, really. And he was never phased by the pressure. Perhaps that shows him what he's done after football, Arthur. I don't know whether you've ever heard about Leboeuf's career. I haven't. I, I really hope he's a butcher in France. <laughs> well, Frank Lebeuf sadly is not. But he has done some interesting things. He moved to L.A., Uh, And he became an actor 
He played for Hollywood United alongside Vinnie Jones in his spare time. And perhaps his biggest hit, actually, was where he played a doctor in The Theory of Everything. Wow. So I had absolutely no idea about that. That's yeah. brilliant. So next time you watch that film, look out for Frank. Well, this is one of my favourite facts we've had on the show. Not because it's particularly funny, but just because I think it's quite random. And I've seen the photo evidence. I suggest you do too. In 2019... Frank LeBeouf competed on the first season of The Masked Singer in France. He was disguised as a peacock. <laughs> there are just these fantastic pictures of Frank LeBeouf dressed as a peacock online, if, if that's something that would tickle your fancy as much as it did with me. That's so good. What an excellent pick for the eleven. Who's going to round off the back line, Arthur? It's a man who is going to pose some very, very stern competition to both Ronald and Frank for the penalty-taking duties in this eleven. Okay. It's Graham Alexander. Oh, yes. We love him. Especially a football league fan like you, Ben. You know, you'll have seen him play many times, I'm sure. Is that right? Yeah, I have seen him play several times. I just remember that distinctive long hair. And I'm sure he went on this colossal run of scoring penalties sort of back in the noughties. He did indeed. He, I would say, is the archetypal football league staple, having had spells at Scumthorpe, Luton, Preston and Burnley. He's also one of only two outfield players to have made more than a thousand professional appearances, which is truly staggering a Scotland international of 40 caps, and more importantly for this 11, a set-piece specialist, Mm. mostly renowned for his penalty-taking, but also capable of excellent free kicks. I think the penalty-taking ability stemmed from a bit of a devastating experience for him. At 19 years old, he missed a penalty in the playoff final for Scunthorpe at Wembley. And I think he considers that a major part as to why he became such a good penalty taker. Mm -hmm. He had to prove to himself and others that he could take them. And he ended up being incredibly good at them. He took penalties in a rather unusual way. He had a straight run up and often opted to use the outside of his foot rather than the inside, uh, rifling it into the net. Uh, He scored 57 and missed just four in his career, which is staggering. On the 15th of August, 2009, he finally made his Premier League bow at the age of 37, becoming the oldest player to make his debut in the English top flight. He scored a month later and is the fifth oldest Premier League scorer of all time. Can you name any of the top four, Ben? Oh, man. Um, you on the spot here. Ryan Giggs. Correct. Oh, dear. Um, it's Paul Scholes. No, I'm afraid not. The other three on that top four were Teddy Sheringham, Stuart Pearce and Dean Windass. Oh, Dean. <laughs> Good old Dean. Days. Exactly. In that first Premier League season or his first and only Premier League season, uh, he scored seven goals, six of them penalties. But Burnley were relegated and his career began to wind down. Uh, To cement his place as a jack-of-all-trades with his set-pieces, he's also an effective throw-in taker. A Sky article written during his time at Preston North End claimed, the former Luton defender has found a teammate with 232 of his long throws this season, with just 61 (laughs) finding their way to the opposition. (laughs) These are the stats you come here for. (laughs) 
<laughs> Someone has spent an inordinate amount of time working that out. So true. And also, he's a man for the big occasion. At the age of 40, he was brought on as a sub for Preston North End in his final appearance before retirement. And he scored an injury time free kick equaliser in a 2-2 draw with Charlton. He's a man for the big occasions. Um, and I think he'll add some much needed steel at right back to this eleven. Again, it's Ronald Koeman. Again, the problem is there. Again, it's a critical moment. He's going to flip one now. He's going to flip one. He's going to flip one. And it's in. Well, let's take a break from our 11 briefly and talk about the fact that set pieces often feature in the climaxes of football movies. I guess there's sort of a natural anticipation of the run up, which is commonly used by directors. Uh, And we've seen this many times over the years. And we've picked out some iconic examples to talk you through. We're going to start with a film that bizarrely was actually filmed partly at my school. uh, And that's Goal. Have you seen that? Oh, of course. I don't think you can really be a football fan of not watched Santiago Munez yeah. uh, arriving at Newcastle and trying to forge a career for himself. I mean, a, a dramatic tale with Anna Frail. Um, but perhaps the, the climax of that film was the free kick taken by Santiago Munez, which I have to say must be the most audacious attempt at goal I think I've ever seen. The ball was almost by the byline when he took the free kick and yet he's gone for goal it seems utterly ludicrous but obviously you know the script writer wanted a dramatic conclusion I think he'd eyed up the goal he wanted to to use for the shot and that was a Laurent Robert goal against Liverpool in in 2004-5 at St James's Park and actually The thing when I watch this clip that I find the most funny is the fact that Santiago Munez throughout the film is right-footed. And then for this one free kick in the dramatic final stages of their game, he becomes (laughs) left-footed. I hadn't realised that. That's great. What a great oh, spot. I mean, I, I, yeah. I couldn't help but notice that Jean-Alain Boomsong, of all people, had got himself in the area for the free kick. So I imagine, despite the fact it, it nestled in the top corner, he was probably pretty cross. He wasn't able to make up with the Newcastle fans. But yeah, I mean, a poor technical rounds, and as, as you could correctly identify with his wrong foot, but nevertheless, quite a dramatic end to that film. Then there's When Saturday Comes, which is a classic... <laughs> Sean Bean, Sheffield United legend film. Yes. Uh, and this dramatic final minute penalty. Well, it, it's it's 2-2 in the FA Cup semi-final between Man U and Sheffield United. Um, and I couldn't help but feel that the rain and mud added so much drama to this particular clip. Um, incredible use of slow-mo. Um, and then the one thing I noticed is the, is the camera sort of looks back as Sean Bean's shot hits the back of the net. And it's blatantly not Sean Bean who's taken the penalty. I mean, (laughs) one of the worst uses of extras I think I've ever seen in a film. Another interesting observation I found was the incredibly retro sound effects when Jimmy Muir gets hit and goes down for the penalty. It's like one of those cartoon, comical, (laughs) fake punch sounds. (laughs) Uh, Exactly. (laughs) And also just the idea that 
this is a Sunday league footballer, essentially. He's been given his big moment for Sheffield United. And somehow they decide that, yes, this heavily concussed defender will be the one who will take this this yeah, incredibly was... crucial penalty. But also I found it a little bizarre that the penalty that, that concludes the film and very dramatic is them getting to the FA Cup final rather than winning the FA Cup yeah, final. Yeah, it does seem somewhat silly that they might have even been relegated that year, Sheffield United, but uh, that Sean Bean had the last laugh in that semi-final. Although I, I think... Perhaps the hands-down winner of the weirdest set piece in a football movie has to go to bend it like Beckham of 2002. This free kick is just absolutely extraordinary. It's got everything. It's the final minutes of the match and our hero gets a free kick. And then the shot of the free kick is just so bizarre. It's basically someone carrying a camera and basically filming the nonplussed faces of the defenders as they look at this ball passing. And she sees her family as the wall. So she's perhaps delirious and shouldn't really be taking the free kick at all. Uh, And then the goalkeeping, it's got to be a match-fixing case. I mean, it's the most diabolical goalkeeping I think anyone's ever done in their lives. I mean, the goalkeeper is literally stood on the post, isn't she? While the free kick is taken to Ness and Dormer, which provides a kind of dramatic backdrop to a scuff that somehow managed to find the back of the net. And I don't know whether you notice as well, but the final whistle conveniently goes as they celebrate the goal, just to add to the drama of this incredible moment. Ben, I'm surprised, though, that you missed the iconic moment in She's the Man when Amanda misses a penalty and then scores the rebound with a bicycle kick. Oh, I haven't (laughs) seen this. This sounds incredible. Oh, absolutely amazing moment. Oh, Um, A classic sort of 90s cheesy, horrible film, but funny. (laughs) Amazing. I mean, set pieces are very much front and centre on Hollywood. So we actually thought perhaps there were some understated set pieces which deserve films of their own. So we've tried to come up with a couple and uh, you can let us know at 11pod which of these two you would prefer to watch. Uh, Arthur, you kick us off. So I've gone for a forthcoming movie called Between the Sticks. Oh, of course you have. (laughs) Maybe the (laughs) favourite line for the goalkeeper position on this podcast. Certainly your favourite line, Ben. I've gone for the story of Paul Robinson's battle against adversity in the shape of (laughs) Ben Foster. (laughs) this is an unbelievably feisty affair they're Mm. battling for the England number one jersey we begin with his early career stacked with promise and a raft of England under 21 caps but our hero Paul cuts a frustrated figure on the bench as understudy to David James at Euro 2004 he's just waiting for his big break although James remains as England's number one in the first 2006 World Cup qualifier Robertson then starts every subsequent match and then stars at the World Cup finals in Germany, keeping clean sheets in four out of five that he plays. Then disaster strikes. Whilst playing against Croatia, an unexpected bobble on a back pass from Gary Neville causes Paul to completely miss the ball. Oh, no. He tries to clear it, resulting in an own goal that puts Croatia 2-0 up. There's a new kid on the block now. A plucky upstart, 24-year-old Ben Foster makes his England debut against Spain. Are our hero's dreams falling apart around him? 
<laughs> a mere month later, war has been declared and the scene is set. Robinson Spurs play Foster's Watford at White Hart Lane in a winner-takes-all showdown. And then our set piece, Robinson's 95-yard free kick beats Foster. He usurps him once more as England's number one and wild celebrations ensue in front of delirious fans. Spielberg will be all over that, Arthur. A little bit of artistic license, I'll be honest, because... He had 41 mm. caps to Foster's eight. So I don't think he really was that much of a challenger. But, you know, Hollywood loves the trier. Yeah, it's got an iconic premiere written all over it, that one. Uh, my one to compete with it. I- I'm quite a big fan of, of Bond movies and spy movies. One I particularly like is Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Uh, so I'd like to present to you Whelan Kitson Fuller Fi. And this <laughs> is a celebration of Stoke's reliance on set pieces during the 08-09 season. Uh, They came 12th, uh, and that distinctive, robust style of play they they had under Tony Pulis was in full effect. Um, Rory DeLapp actually contributed nine goals from his throw-ins, so you might think he was going to be the protagonist of this movie. But in fact, no, it's Sayi Olivinjana. The film tracks Sayi, Uh, as he goes from Crown (laughs) FC in the Nigerian second tier, whilst doing a degree in chemical engineering, uh, to playing in the Premier League for Stoke City and scoring the winning goal uh, on the 1st of November 2008 in the win against Arsenal. It's an incredible goal. He actually almost falls on the ball. Um, I really do recommend you looking it up on YouTube, but it comes from a Rory Delap throw. So uh, a set piece to be the dramatic finale uh, of Wheeling Kits and Fuller Fight. I'm very excited to watch this. It's going to bring all the memories back, Rory. Rory and Say just combining to a wonderful effect. So today, left midfield is up for grabs. We have a couple of nominations coming a little later. But at centre midfield, Ben, who's, who's playing there? Well, so many options in the centre in the midfield. But as you said at the start, we like to go for the more obscure names. So I have picked Nenad Milijas. He was a bit of a Wolves cult hero, to be honest, the Serbian international. Six foot two, a powerhouse of a midfielder known for his long range shooting, but also for his sublime free kicks. When I say his sublime free kicks, actually his performances and free kicks at Wolves sort of flattered to deceive. He joined in 2009 for 2.6 million from Red Star Belgrade. He played 62 times, scoring just two league goals. And his only free kick for the club was scored in the League Cup against Northampton Town. Admittedly, apparently an incredible strike. Following the appointment of Stalla Solbakken, Milajas requested to leave. He wanted more uh, first-team football because he'd fallen out of favour. So why am I suggesting that this Serbian was a set-piece specialist? Well, the 14-15 season is why he became more reliant on his set-piece taking as he got older and lost any pace. And he actually scored eight direct free kicks in that one season. Bizarrely, for three different clubs. He started the season at Red Star. Then he moved to Manisaspor in Turkey. 
uh, during the January. Uh, and then because of the way that the different seasons fall throughout the year, he was able to move to Hebei Fortune in China to complete an extra long 14-15 season. Uh, and such a pure striker of the ball took that opportunity with open arms, making sure his goal tally for that year um, struck a chord with me. Yes, an excellent pick. And just very frustrating that Wolves didn't unlock that free kick taking ability. I don't know whether Wolves had an especially good free kick taker at the time, uh, but that must be immensely frustrating for Wolves fans to see his success at Red Star across his career. Yeah, I think people rated him and he did take a lot of their free kicks, but it just never quite happened for him in the Premier League. Um, so much so that he actually made Carla Kami's perfect Wolves player. He was asked to sort of dissect the human body into its various component parts with players he played with. Uh, and he picked the left foot of Nenad Milajas, saying, there's something about left footers that can be really beautiful on the eye. Nenad had a wand. In a way, he was everything Mick McCarthy doesn't stand for. He couldn't run. He didn't have an engine, but he had a gorgeous passing technique. He was great on set pieces, a really intelligent player who'd played at a top level. He was a funny guy too, in an understated way. His English wasn't great. He always stunk of fags, but his left foot was outstanding. We need um, we need another centre midfielder alongside him, don't we? Yes, I've decided to pair Nenad with... Chris Brunt. (laughs) It's a a really high quality side, this one. Chris is a player of real versatility. He's capable of playing left back, left and right wing, but also centre midfield, which I don't think he played that regularly, but that's where he's playing for us. He was a Middlesbrough trainee and started his career really in earnest at Sheffield Wednesday. In his first full season, he helped the Owls achieve promotion to the championship uh, and went on to make 134 appearances before joining West Brom. He went on to become a true West Brom legend. His 421 appearances included 48 goals and his club record 269 games in the Premier League as well was truly phenomenal. Yet, if Brunt is remembered for one thing above all others, it will be as a prolific creator of goals. And I thought that's an interesting new side of this eleven that mm-hmm. I think will be immensely important. Not only did he take direct free kicks, but he was very, very good at taking corners and taking free kicks where he'd whip the ball into the box and get a goal for his team from a header. He has more assists in the Premier League than any other Albion player with his total of 49 during his time in the Premier League from 2008 to 18. Uh, that ranks him seventh in assists uh, ahead of the likes of Mata, Eriksson, Young and Van Persie. And he was absent in the championship for one of those seasons. He said, I definitely got as much satisfaction from setting up a goal as I did from scoring one. I mean, that is probably what everyone who gets lots of assists would say. (laughs) It's like the stock response, isn't it? And he averaged an assist once every 443 minutes in the Premier League, which is a better rate than Steven Gerrard, Gilfie Sigurdsson and Frank Lampard. Um, Mm -hmm. Many of his assists, as I say, came from corners. He struck up a particularly fruitful bond with his club and countryman, Gareth McCauley. Chris describes one of those assists. 
there were so many for West Brom and Northern Ireland, and we had an understanding. I just knew I could put it in an area, and there was a good chance he'd get there. There was one the following season at Fulham where he scored to get us a one-all draw late on, and I saw they'd left him on the edge of the box. I knew as soon as I saw him that I could just send one a bit higher to the far post and nobody in the world was going to beat him to it. Mm. I love that quote. Nobody in the world could beat Gareth McCauley. Gareth McCauley of all people as well. Yeah. Yeah. I I have to say, I I do think that's a great pick. Chris Brunt, he seemed to have an ability to affect games way beyond his levels of quality I don't know whether that's fair on him but to to break so many Premier League records yet do so for a club that was always fighting in the bottom half of the league he almost he struck me as someone who overachieved to some extent throughout his career because of his set-piece ability well done Chris he's in alongside Nenad in the set-piece specialists 11 remember you can get in touch at 11 pod if there's a glaring choice you think we've missed uh, or a nostalgic name you want to put forward. I've got the right midfielder, and I've gone for Mario Basler. You, ben, you, you, you're constantly telling me your knowledge of Bundesliga <laughs> is not that strong, but Mario is a Bundesliga legend. Well, he is somewhat. Um, perhaps the forgotten protagonist of the 1999 Champions League final. Manchester United, obviously, sewed up the treble but um, Basler opened the scoring with a low fairly unremarkable free kick into the bottom left-hand corner with Schmeichel caught flat-footed so in many ways his free kick was perhaps the forgotten moment in one of the most famous matches of all time he was a noticeably tall intelligent wide player known for his creativity and particularly his dead ball specialism He arrived at Bayern from Werder Bremen in 1996 uh, and he finished joint top goal scorer in the Bundesliga with 20 goals in 1994, uh, which led to that move. The same year, his Werder Bremen side finished runners up in the league and many people claim that it was the skill of Basler that sort of propelled them towards that position. His seven free kick goals during the 95-96 campaign stands as the highest single season record for dead ball conversions in the league to this day. Uh, And he won three Bundesliga titles, a DFB Pokal, um, and also made the German national squad for 1996 European Championships. So he achieved plenty over that period of his career. In total, Basler scored 21 free kick goals in his career, um, including two known as Olympic goals. Now, do you know what they are, Arthur? I have absolutely no idea. Well, it's something that the Germans termed uh, for when you score straight from a corner. So like Macedonia against England. Yeah, exactly. So he he applied such curl to the ball, Mario Basler, that he actually scored twice. Uh, the one I saw was in a game against Bochum and it looked totally deliberate, to be fair. So a great deal of quality. But though Bassler was popular amongst his fans because of his unpredictability and ability on set pieces, he was never popular amongst his management. 
he was a fiery character off the field. He was a chain smoker, a heavy drinker, and he'd rarely put any effort in in training or even turn up. So much so that Bayern Munich had hired a private detective to get to know about Basta's whereabouts after the time he'd spent during matches uh, or on club premises. So, um, yeah, he was certainly a bit of a controversial one. Absolutely. And it sounds slightly concerning to me that maybe Chris Brunt will be usurped from corner taking duties. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think because of his sheer levels of assists, Brunt does start the season as our set piece taker. But um, if the fiery character of Bassler is anything to go by, I'm sure it won't be long before there's a training ground bust up between the pair of them. Uh, he he was a bit of a knob bassler, if we're honest. He was described as incorrigible by uh, Beckenbauer. Voller called him a part-time clown. But despite all of these negatives that people flung at him, we can still look back at YouTube highlights reels of Mario and what he brought to the game and, and, and cherish what a wonderful set-piece taker he really was. Yeah, I really like the Mario pick. And now to round our midfield off before the up-for-grabs position is a centre-attacking midfielder. Uh, and he's a name that I wouldn't be surprised if our listeners are clamouring for at this stage. Ooh, and it's right. Juninho Penambucano. Yes, I thought you were going to say Andy Reid. Yeah, Juninho Penambucano <laughs> is the iconic free-kick taker of the noughties. When I think of free-kicks, he his is the first name that springs to mind. He's known for his time in particular at Lyon, where he's a club legend and the current sporting director. And he was a dead ball specialist noted for his bending free kicks, in particular, the knuckleball technique, which he developed. This is where the ball has almost no spinning motion during flight. And essentially it wobbles, baffling (laughs) the goalkeeper. You know, think perhaps Ronaldo versus Portsmouth, and you've got a good idea as to what the knuckleball is. He first made his name as a free kick taker with a long range strike against Bayern Munich in the 2003 Champions League, in which the ball dipped viciously at the end of travel and it deceived Bayern keeper Oliver Kahn, who was considered one of the best goalkeepers in the world at the time. So many iconic free kicks to mention, many of them at more than 40 yards, including ones against Ajaccio, uh, Barcelona. Marseille and Nice, the latter being 48 yards and enough to help Leon recover from 2-0 down. Internationally, he made 40 appearances for Brazil, scoring a beauty from 30 yards against Greece. In total, Juninho scored at least 75 goals in his career from direct free kicks. Um, His career spanned from 93 to 2013. And he credits Marcelino as his inspiration claiming the Brazilian was the first he'd seen make the ball, and I quote, dance in the air, which conjures up a really lovely image, I feel. Andrea Pirlo was awestruck by Juninho Pannambucano. He wrote in his autobiography, during his time at Lyon, that man made the ball do some quite extraordinary things. He'd lay it on the ground, twist his body into a few strange shapes, take his run up and score. He never got it wrong, never. I checked out his stats and realised it couldn't just be chance. He was like an orchestra conductor who'd been assembled upside down with the baton held by his feet instead of his hands. Wow. (laughs) He'd give you you the thumbs up by raising his big toe. Somebody (laughs) at Ikea was having a good laugh the day they put him together. (laughs) 
it just gets better and better. <laughs> I I refuse to believe Andrea Pirlo actually wrote that. I think there's a brilliant know. ghostwriter. <laughs> it's so good. I love that. Yes. Outside of his free kicks, he was known for his excellent passing ability and vision. Uh, his tenacity and work rate and leadership were also much vaunted, leaving him to become club captain at Lyon and later in his career at Al Garafa. So I feel like he could be our midfield leader in the centre of the park as well. So offering a lot to this eleven. Yeah, a wonderful pick. And and one of many Brazilians, really, that could have been slotted in. I'm thinking Ronaldinho. Um, I'm thinking the likes of Ilano, even. There's something about that Samba flair that, that seems to work when it comes to set pieces. Janinho, a prime example. possession by Brunt. Oh, and the keeper's off his line, and Chris Brunt has beaten him with the most exquisite chip. Brilliant, brilliant goal by Chris Brunt. So who's playing up front, Ben? We need one man to lead the line, and and actually I found this quite challenging. It's surprising how few strikers contribute to set pieces other than penalties, really. I went for a player who can play anywhere across the front line, Alvaro Recoba. Excellent shout. An Inter Milan legend. He was. He was nicknamed El Chino, a sensationally gifted attacking player with 69 caps for Uruguay. He played 11 seasons for Inter Milan between 97 and 2008. Quick, he was technically gifted. He was creative. He was capable of scoring and creating goals. His only downfall really was that he was injury prone and he had the sort of work rate and attitude that was often criticised by pundits and perhaps meant he didn't quite fulfil his potential. But his set piece prowess was clear from the off. He made his inter debut on the same day as Ronaldo Nazario uh, on the 31st of August 97 when he came on as a sub against Brescia. He scored two goals in the last 10 minutes of the match. One, a powerful 30-yard shot. The next, a free kick dipping into the top corner after a Cristiano Doni foul. And those goals allowed Inter to come back and win the match 2-1. And he continued to be pretty influential throughout his time at the club, scoring some pretty delightful free kicks. My favourite, a swirling pile driver from distance against Bologna in 2003, which is well worth checking out on YouTube. Something almost Roberto Carlos-esque like it. Half technical brilliance and the rest just an exhibition of audacity. Someone playing with full confidence and on form and prepared to have a go from distance. Yeah, a wonderful striker. I didn't actually remember his free kick taking ability but thank you for reminding me of it thinking about other strikers who like a bit of a free kick I was thinking of Hulk the Brazilian striker for Porto who just had this absolute jackhammer of a shot (laughs) he did he absolutely smashed it didn't he and another sort of slightly puzzling genius there seems to be this link between certain set piece takers of of an ilk and the fact that they were almost on a different time zone they didn't really follow the normal um you know conformities of the game but rather just had this unique ability to put the ball in the net from from a dead ball situation perhaps you've got to have a certain arrogance about you to uh, be able to do some of the stuff that these iconic free kick takers could do 
like you, I'm disappointed that Alvaro Recoba never played in England. Um, he was linked with Man United at one stage a little later in his career, but it never materialised, sadly. And we ended up with Diego Forlan instead. And we all know what happened there. Right, it's time for Up for Grabs. Uh, the position this week is left midfield. And we're delighted to have got a few nominations from friends of the show. First up is Sky Golf commentator Richard Kaufman, who is wonderful at what he does and also a big Fulham fan. Delighted he's got in touch. Let's hear who he goes for. Well, the more you think about it, the more left-sided players comes to mind that can hit a dead ball. I mean, I ended up, when I thought about it, with a fairly long list. I mean, leaving out Ryan Giggs. Gareth Bell, Kevin Sheedy. I mean, there were three players who could hit the ball with that sweet left foot. But I'm going to choose John Barnes, a player that I got to see at the start of his career at Watford. I remember going to an FA Cup match, a really tight match between Watford and my team Fulham. But John Barnes was the difference that day as well. I mean, down that left-hand side, marauding. Now, you probably won't think of John Barnes necessarily. It doesn't spring to mind that he was necessarily the greatest free kick taker but given the opportunity and of course he had competition for taking set pieces particularly in that Liverpool team but given the opportunity he he did tuck a fair few away score from penalties as well Um, and of course not only a good dead ball specialist but also such a lovely free-flowing footballer to watch and we should remember as well a, a pretty good rapper when he was given the opportunity on the England song as well so I'm going to go with John Barnes. Yes, John Barnes. What a pick. I actually have fond memories of being at Vicarage Road for Southampton's 1-1 draw with Watford and Shane Long scoring the fastest ever goal in Premier League history. And John Barnes was wheeled on at half-time to lead a sing-song of Rocket Man. Obviously, they're big Elton John fans there. He, he was, was quite wheeled funny on? What? <laughs> He was wheeled out. In a wheelbarrow or something. (laughs) (laughs) What a bizarre spectacle you seem to have gone to. A big Elton John fans there at Vicarage Road. And the reluctance in John, who was just trying to get these these fans to sing. And then Saints fans were trying to out-sing them. And it was just a bit cringe, really. But undoubtedly a quality player. And nice to be reminded about his free kick-taking ability. Nice one. Thank you so much, Richard. It's much appreciated. Uh, And we've also had a nomination from Carlo Garganese. Uh, Now, Carlo is a fantastic editor, broadcaster and writer. Do check out his Twitter page. Uh, But he's also the uh, presenter of the Italian football podcast. Well worth a listen to that. Let's see who he is nominated. Hello, Carlo Garganese here from the Italian football podcast at Left midfield, I am going for Sinisa Mihailovic. He began his career in this position for, for Red Star Belgrade, won the, the European Cup in, in 1991. And then he, he later in his career, when he moved to Serie A, he, he became a, a defender, a centre-back, and one of the best in, in the world. Um, but he's most famous for his, his brilliant free kick taking. He... He scored 28 free-kick goals um, in Serie A, which is an all-time Serie A record, along with Andrea Pirlo. Um, he famously scored a hat-trick of free-kicks in, in one game for, for Lazio. And he he was, with his beautiful left foot, 
he could he could score from long range, medium range, close range. And and Sven Goran Eriksson, who who coached him at, at Lazio and at Sampdoria, he he told me on 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 the Italian football podcast recently that Mihailovic is the best left-footed free kick taker ever, and I would definitely agree with that. Yes, great to get a legend of Serie A into this vote. Sanisa Mihailovic, he is vying actually to make the eleven history and being the first player ever to make it into two elevens. Well, I think the worldies 11 goes quite hand in hand with this. And I think we'd be delighted to see him again in the team. Particularly as he's in a new position this time on the left-hand side of the midfield instead of centre-back. So uh, thank you, Carlo. Fantastic stuff. Um, Arthur, who are you going to put forward? I'd like to put forward a Bundesliga player in Juan Arango. Does that (laughs) ring a bell? It does, yeah. After beginning his career in his homeland of Venezuela and then Mexico, he played in Europe for Mallorca and Borussia Mönchengladbach. He made 365 appearances for them, scoring 80 goals. He was a left-footed playmaker who was known for his technical skills, leadership and ability to both score and create goals, courtesy of his striking ability, crossing and passing. He was a classic number 10 who was capable of playing both in the middle and as a winger. And he's widely considered the best Venezuelan footballer of all time. He's nicknamed Arangol and was a dead ball specialist who was highly regarded by pundits for exceptional accuracy from free kicks and his ability to bend the ball. I think it's best to let him explain just how good he was. In a 2013 interview, he said, I do not need to hide behind Cristiano Ronaldo in terms of free kicks. Last season, he scored two direct free kicks and I scored three. And this season, I want more. It's a goal of mine. I don't need to remain behind for half an hour after training to practice. I just need a few minutes. I just know how to do it. (laughs) Wow. Great to have such a modest player into our vote. (laughs) Who have you gone for, Ben? I have chosen uh, someone who I consider to be a bit of a Premier League and SPL legend, and that's Alan Thompson. I um, I didn't know that Alan Thompson was an England international. He actually made a cap back in 2004 against Sweden, but he's probably better known for his 550 appearances across his career for Leeds, Bolton, uh, and perhaps most notably Celtic. He put in a decent shift in a number of positions, but he wasn't a particularly outstanding open play um, technician, more a dead ball specialist. That was his trademark. He scored the winning goal against Rangers in two separate old firm derby matches. um, But perhaps the most iconic moment of his time at Celtic Park was a worldy free kick in their 3-0 win in 2004. He floated the ball from distance and it cannoned in off the bar. Um, He never crumbled in the big moments of games. And for that reason, I've got a great deal of respect for Alan Thompson. In total, 14 of his 37 goals came from set pieces uh, alongside a whole load of assists, including 14 in the Premier League. And if you're wondering what Alan Thompson's up to these days, well, actually, tomorrow at time of recording, he is taking part in a charity boxing match against Simon Webb, the singer from Blue. (laughs) 
he might have too much on his plate to take his place in this 11. Yeah, I don't know how he's going to find time for both, frankly. I mean, any footballer versus celeb boxing matches you'd particularly like to see, Arthur? I'd like to see Tyson Fury against Neil Mellor. Plenty of players that narrowly missed out on this squad for me, Arthur. Any on the bench for you? Yeah, just a couple of very obvious names that I think it's worth mentioning because some of our listeners might think these guys are idiots and they haven't mentioned legends such as David Beckham, Matt Letizia, of course. What I quite liked about him was his ability to strike an indirect free kick when it was played back to him. He'd chip it up and hit it top corner. Yeah, Incredible. I, like you say, we don't want people to think we're missing out the big guns. So I also want to throw onto the bench Eddie Lewis, um, the ex Leeds United midfielder and USA international. Um, scoring set pieces at key moments is a big skill, and his goal in the playoffs against Preston, I think, warrants a place on the bench. So, Arthur, run us through the team. So we have Mark Crossley in goal, centre back pairing of Ronald Koeman and Frank LaBeouf. At left back, Ian Hart, and at right back, Graham Alexander. In midfield, we have Chris Brunt and Nenad Milijas. At centre attacking midfield, we have Juninho Panambucano. At right midfield, there's Mario Basler. And left midfield is a choice of yours. You can go to Twitter at 11pod and there'll be a poll up there. And up front on his own, it's Alvaro Rocoba. That was the Sepi Specialist 11. Thank you for listening.